Section 11 of My Discovery of England by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Have the English any sense of humor? Part 1. It was understood that the main point of my trip to England was to find out whether the British people have any sense of humor. No doubt the Geographical Society had this investigation in mind in not paying my expenses. Certainly on my return I was at once assailed with the question on all sides, have they got a sense of humor? Even if it is only a rudimentary sense, have they got it or have they not? I propose, therefore, to address myself to the answer to this question. A peculiar interest always attaches to humor. There is no quality of the human mind about which its possessor is more sensitive than the sense of humor. A man will freely confess that he has no ear for music, or no taste for fiction, or even no interest in religion. But I have yet to see the man who announces that he has no sense of humor. In point of fact, every man is apt to think himself possessed of an exceptional gift in this direction, and that even if his humor does not express itself in the power either to make a joke or to laugh at one, it none the less consists in a peculiar insight or inner light superior to that of other people. The same thing is true of nations. Each thinks its own humor of an entirely superior kind, and either refuses to admit, or admits reluctantly, the humorous quality of other people's. The Englishman may credit the Frenchman with a certain light effervescence of mind which he neither emulates nor envies. The Frenchman may acknowledge that English literature shows here and there a sort of heavy playfulness, but neither of them would consider that the humor of the other nation could stand a moment's comparison with its own. Yet, oddly enough, American humor stands as a conspicuous exception to this general rule. A certain vogue clings to it. Ever since the spacious days of Artemis Ward and Mark Twain, it has enjoyed an extraordinary reputation, and this not only on our own continent, but in England. It is in a sense the English who discovered Mark Twain. I mean it was they who first clearly recognized him as a man of letters of the foremost rank, at a time when academic Boston still tried to explain him away as a mere comic man of the West. In the same way, Artemis Ward is still held in affectionate remembrance in London, and of the later generation, Mr. Dooley at least is a household word. This is so much the case that a sort of legend has grown around American humor. It is presumed to be a superior article, and to enjoy the same kind of preeminence as French cooking, the Russian ballet, and Italian organ grinding. With this goes the converse supposition that the British people are inferior in humor, that a joke reaches them only with great difficulty, and that a British audience listens to humor in gloomy and unintelligent silence. People still love to repeat the famous story of how John Bright listened attentively to Artemis Ward's lecture in London, and then said, gravely, that he doubted many of the young man's statements. And readers still remember Mark Twain's famous parody of the discussion of his book by a wooden-headed reviewer of an English review. But the legend in reality is only a legend. If the English are inferior to Americans in humor, I, for one, am at a loss to see where it comes in. If there is anything on our continent superior in humor to punch, I should like to see it. 
if we have any more humorous writers in our midst than e v lucas and charles graves and owen seaman i should like to read what they write and if there is any audience capable of more laughter and more generous appreciation than an audience in london or bristol or aberdeen i should like to lecture to it during my voyage of discovery in great britain i had very exceptional opportunities for testing the truth of these comparisons it was my good fortune to appear as an avowed humorist in all the great british cities i lectured as far north as aberdeen and as far south as brighton and bournemouth i travelled eastward to ipswich and westward into wales i spoke on serious subjects but with a joke or two in loco at the universities at business gatherings and at london dinners i watched lost in admiration the inspired merriment of the savages of adelphi terrace and in my moments of leisure i observed with a scientific eye the gaieties of the london reviews as a result of which i say with conviction that speaking by and large the two communities are on the same level a harvard audience as i have reason gratefully to acknowledge is wonderful but an oxford audience is just as good a gathering of business men in a textile town in the midlands is just as heavy as a gathering of business men in decatur indiana but no heavier and an audience of english schoolboys as at rugby or at clifton is capable of a wild and sustained merriment not to be outdone from halifax to los angeles there is however one vital difference between american and english audiences which would be apt to discourage at the outset any american lecturer who might go to england the english audiences from the nature of the way in which they have been brought together expect more in england they still associate lectures with information we don't our american lecture audiences are in nine cases out of ten organized by a woman's club of some kind and drawn not from the working class but from what shall we call it the class that doesn't have to work or at any rate not too hard it is largely a social audience well educated without being high-brow and tolerant and kindly to a degree in fact what the people mainly want is to see the lecturer they have heard all about g k chesterton and hugh walpole and john drinkwater and so when these gentlemen come to town the woman's club want to have a look at them just as the english people who are all crazy about animals flock to the zoo to look at a new giraffe they don't expect the giraffe to do anything in particular they want to see it that's all so with the american woman's club audience after they have seen mr chesterton they ask one another as they come out just as an incidental matter did you understand his lecture and the answer is i can't say i did but there is no malice about it they can now go and say that they have seen mr chesterton that's worth two dollars in itself the nearest thing to this attitude of mind that i heard of in england was at the city temple in london where they have every week a huge gathering of about two thousand people to listen to a so-called popular lecture when i was there i was told that the person who had preceded me was lord haldane who had lectured on einstein's theory of relativity i said to the chairman surely this kind of audience couldn't understand a lecture like that he shook his head no he said 
They didn't understand it, but they all enjoyed it. I don't mean to imply by what I said above that American lecture audiences do not appreciate good things, or that the English lecturers who come to this continent are all giraffes. On the contrary, when the audience finds that Chesterton and Walpole and Drinkwater, in addition to being visible, are also singularly interesting lecturers, they are all the better pleased. But this doesn't alter the fact that they have come primarily to see the lecturer. Not so in England. Here a lecture, outside London, is organized on a much sterner footing. The people are there for information. The lecture is organized not by idle, amiable, charming women, but by a body called, with variations, the Philosophical Society. From experience I should define an English Philosophical Society as all the people in town who don't know anything about philosophy. The academic and university classes were never there. The audience is only of plainer folk. In the United States and Canada, at any evening lecture, a large sprinkling of the audience are in evening dress. At an English lecture, outside of London, none of them are. Philosophy is not to be wooed in such a garb. Nor are there the same commodious premises, the same bright lights, and the same atmosphere of gaiety as at a society lecture in America. On the contrary, the setting is a gloomy one. In England, in winter, night begins at four in the afternoon. In the manufacturing towns of the Midlands and the North, which is where the philosophical societies flourish, there is always a drizzling rain and wet slop underfoot, a bedraggled poverty in the streets, and a dimness of lights that contrasts with the glare of light in an American town. There is no visible sign in the town that a lecture is to happen, no placards, no advertisements, nothing. The lecturer is conducted by a chairman through a side door in a dingy building, the Institute, established 1840, and then all of a sudden in a huge, dim hall, there sits the Philosophical Society. There are a thousand of them, but they sit as quiet as a prayer meeting. They are waiting to be fed, on information. Now I don't mean to say that the Philosophical Society are not a good audience. In their own way they're all right. Once the Philosophical Society has decided that a lecture is humorous, they do not stint their laughter. I have had many times the satisfaction of seeing a Philosophical Society swept away from its moorings and tossing in a sea of laughter, as generous and as whole-hearted as anything we ever see in America. But they are not so willing to begin. With us, the chairman has only to say to the gaily-dressed members of the Ladies' Fortnightly Club, Well, ladies, I'm sure we are all looking forward very much to Mr. Walpole's lecture. And at once there is a ripple of applause, and a responsive expression on a hundred charming faces. Not so the Philosophical Society of the Midlands. The chairman rises. He doesn't call for silence. It is there, thick. We have with us tonight, he says, a man whose name is well known to the Philosophical Society. Here he looks at his card. Mr. Stephen Leacock. Complete silence. He is a professor of political economy at, here he turns to me and says, Which college did you say? I answer quite audibly in the silence. At McGill. He's at McGill, says the chairman. More silence. I don't suppose, however, ladies and gentlemen, 
that he's come here to talk about political economy. This is meant as a jest, but the audience takes it as a threat. However, ladies and gentlemen, you haven't come here to listen to me. This evokes applause, the first of the evening. So without more ado, the man always has the impression that there's been a lot of ado, but I never see any of it. I'll now introduce Mr. Leacock. Complete silence. Nothing of which means the least harm. It only implies that the philosophical society are true philosophers in accepting nothing unproved. They are like the man from Missouri. They want to be shown. And undoubtedly it takes a little time, therefore, to rouse them. I remember listening with great interest to Sir Michael Sadler, who is possessed of a very neat wit, introducing me at Leeds. He threw three jokes, one after the other, into the heart of a huge, silent audience without effect. He might as well have thrown soap bubbles. But the fourth joke broke fair and square like a bomb in the middle of the philosophical society, and exploded them into convulsions. The process is very like what artillery men tell of bracketing the object fired at, and then landing fairly on it. In what I have just written about audiences, I have purposely been using the word English and not British, for it does not in the least apply to the Scotch. There is, for a humorous lecturer, no better audience in the world than a Scotch audience. The old standing joke about the Scotch sense of humor is mere nonsense yet one finds it everywhere. "'So you're going to try to take humour up to Scotland,' the most eminent author in England said to me. "'Well, the Lord help you. You'd better take an axe with you to open their skulls. There is no other way.' How this legend started I don't know, but I think it is because the English are jealous of the Scotch. They got into the Union with them in 1707, and they can't get out.' The Scotch don't want home rule, or soiraj, or dominion status, or anything. They just want the English. When they want money, they go to London and make it. If they want literary fame, they sell their books to the English. And to prevent any kind of political trouble, they take care to keep the cabinet well filled with Scotchmen. The English, for shame's sake, can't get out of the Union, so they retaliate by saying that the Scotch have no sense of humor. But there's nothing in it. One has only to ask any of the theatrical people, and they will tell you that the audiences in Glasgow and Edinburgh are the best in the British Isles, possess the best taste, and the best ability to recognize what is really good. The reason for this lies, I think, in the well-known fact that the Scotch are a truly educated people, not educated in the mere sense of having been made to go to school, but in the higher sense of having acquired an interest in books and a respect for learning. In England the higher classes alone possess this, the working class as a whole know nothing of it. But in Scotland the attitude is universal, and the more I reflect upon the subject, the more I believe that what counts most in the appreciation of humour is not nationality, but the degree of education enjoyed by the individual concerned. I do not think that there is any doubt that educated people possess a far wider range of humour than the uneducated class. Some people, of course, get over-educated and become hopelessly academic. The word highbrow has been invented exactly to fit the case. 
the sense of humor in the highbrow has become atrophied, or to vary the metaphor, it is submerged or buried under the accumulated strata of his education, on the topsoil of which flourishes a fine growth of conceit. But even in the highbrow, the educated appreciation of humor is there, away down. Generally, if one attempts to amuse a highbrow, he will resent it as if the process were beneath him, or perhaps the intellectual jealousy and touchiness with which he is always overcharged will lead him to retaliate with a pointless story from Plato. But if the highbrow is right off his guard and has no jealousy in his mind, you may find him roaring with laughter and wiping his spectacles, with his sides shaking, and see him converted as by magic into the merry, clever little schoolboy that he was thirty years ago, before his education ossified him. But with the illiterate and the rustic no such process is possible. His sense of humor may be there as a sense, but the mechanism for setting it in operation is limited and rudimentary. Only the broadest and most elementary forms of joke can reach him. The magnificent mechanism of the art of words is, quite literally, a sealed book to him. Here and there, indeed, a form of fun is found so elementary in its nature, and yet so excellent in execution, that it appeals to all alike, to the illiterate and to the highbrow, to the peasant and the professor. Such, for example, are the antics of Mr. Charles Chaplin, or the depiction of Mr. Jiggs by the pencil of George McManus but such cases are rare. As a rule, the cheap fun that excites the rustic to laughter is execrable to the man of education. In the light of what I have said before, it follows that the individuals that are findable in every English or American audience are much the same. All those who lecture or act are well aware that there are certain types of people that are always to be seen somewhere in the hall. Some of these belong to the general class of discouraging people. They listen in stolid silence. No light of intelligence ever gleams on their faces. No response comes from their eyes. I find, for example, that wherever I go there is always seated in the audience, about three seats from the front, a silent man with a big motionless face like a melon. He is always there. I have seen that man in every town or city from Richmond, Indiana, to Bournemouth in Hampshire. He haunts me. I get to expect him. I feel like nodding to him from the platform. And I find that all other lecturers have the same experience. Wherever they go, the man with the big face is always there. He never laughs. No matter if the people all around him are convulsed with laughter, he sits there like a rock or no, like a toad, immovable. What he thinks, I don't know. Why he comes to lectures, I cannot guess. Once and once only I spoke to him, or rather, he spoke to me. I was coming out from the lecture, and found myself close to him in the corridor. It had been a rather gloomy evening, the audience had hardly laughed at all, and I know nothing sadder than a humorous lecture without laughter. The man with the big face, finding himself beside me, turned and said, Some of them people weren't getting that tonight. His tone of sympathy seemed to imply that he had got it all himself. If so, he must have swallowed it whole without a sign. But I have since thought that this man with the big face may have his own internal form of appreciation. 
This much, however, I know. To look at him from the platform is fatal. One sustained look into his big, motionless face, and the lecturer would be lost. Inspiration would die upon one's lips. The basilisk isn't in it with him. Personally, I no sooner see the man with the big face than instinctively I turn my eyes away. I look round the hall for another man that I know is always there, the opposite type, the little man with the spectacles. There he sits, good soul, about twelve rows back, his large spectacles beaming with appreciation, and his quick face anticipating every point. I imagine him to be by trade a minor journalist, or himself a writer of sorts, but with not enough of success to have spoiled him. There are other people always there, too. There is the old lady who thinks the lecture improper. It doesn't matter how moral it is, she's out for impropriety, and she can find it anywhere. Then there is another very terrible man, against whom all American lecturers in England should be warned, the man who is leaving on the 9 p.m. train. English railways running into suburbs and nearby towns have a schedule which is expressly arranged to have the principal train leave before the lecture ends. Hence the 9 p.m. train man. He sits right near the front, and at ten minutes to nine he gathers up his hat, coat, and umbrella very deliberately, rises with great calm, and walks firmly away. His air is that of a man who has stood all that he can, and can bear no more. Till one knows about this man, and the others who rise after him, it is very disconcerting. At first I thought I must have said something to reflect upon the royal family." but presently the lecturer gets to understand that it is only the nine o'clock train, and that all the audience know about it. Then it's all right. It's just like the people rising and stretching themselves after the seventh innings in baseball. In all that goes above, I have been emphasizing the fact that the British and the American sense of humor are essentially the same thing. But there are, of course, peculiar differences of form, and peculiar preferences of material, that often make them seem to diverge widely. By this I mean that each community has, within limits, its own particular ways of being funny, and its own particular conception of a joke. Thus a Scotchman likes best a joke which he has all to himself, or which he shares reluctantly with a few. The thing is too rich to distribute. The American loves particularly as his line of a joke, an anecdote with the point all concentrated at the end, and exploding in a phrase. The Englishman loves best as his joke, the narration of something that actually did happen, and that depends, of course, for its point on its reality. There are plenty of minor differences, too, in point of mere form, and very naturally each community finds the peculiar form used by the others less pleasing than its own. In fact, for this very reason, each people is apt to think its own humor the best. Thus, on our side of the Atlantic, to cite our own faults first, we still cling to the supposed humor of bad spelling. We have indeed told ourselves a thousand times over that bad spelling is not funny, but is very tiresome. Yet it is no sooner laid aside and buried than it gets resurrected. I suppose the real reason is that it is funny, at least to our eyes. When Bill Nye spells wife with Y-P-H, we can't help being amused. 
Now Bill Nye's bad spelling had absolutely no point to it except its oddity. At times it was extremely funny, but as a mode it led easily to widespread and pointless imitation. It was the kind of thing, like poetry, that anybody can do badly. It was most deservedly abandoned with execration. No American editor would print it today. But witness the new and excellent effect produced with bad spelling by Mr. Ring W. Lardner. Here, however, the case is altered. It is not the falseness of Mr. Lardner's spelling that is the amusing feature of it, but the truth of it. When he writes, Dear friend Al, I would have wrote sooner, R-O-T-E, etc., he is truer to actual sound and intonation than the lexicon. The mode is excellent, but the imitations will soon debase it into such bad coin that it will fail to pass current. In England, however, the humor of bad spelling does not, and has never, I believe, flourished. Bad spelling is only used in England as an attempt to reproduce phonetically a dialect. It is not intended that the spelling itself should be thought funny, but the dialect that it represents. But the effect, on the whole, is tiresome. A little dose of the humor of Lancashire or Somerset or Yorkshire pronunciation may be all right, but a whole page of it looks like the gibbering of chimpanzees set down on paper. End of section 11